We're going to start today with a famous quote, a quote from maybe one of our most famous American leaders. Um, He's not the most famous. I think that title will probably always fall to our first president. But if you had to make a list of leaders or presidents of our country, his name would probably be number two on your list. I'm going to read this quote, see if you know who said it. It said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Who said it? I think I heard mostly Abraham Lincoln. There may have been a Thomas Jefferson thrown in there somewhere, and if that was you, go home and study your history books. It's a really good segue to today's message, though, because tomorrow is President's Day. Abraham, at this point, uh, in 1858, he was a senatorial candidate. He wasn't yet running for president. And this piece of wisdom, this very eloquent, eloquent quote that he came up with, it wasn't something that just kind of, uh, you know, inspiration struck him off the top of his head, and when a reporter asked a question, he answered. Abraham got this piece of wisdom from the same place that we all should be going for our wisdom, from Scripture, specifically the 12th chapter of Matthew. See, in that time, the hot-button subject of the day was slavery. And, and, and Abraham Lincoln's answer to this question, he kind of unwillingly or unknowingly stepped himself right into the middle of this debate. What we've been talking about here over the last several weeks, and I think going on months now, is this sermon series entitled, Kingdom. Right, Bryce has been walking us through this sermon series through Matthew and, and helping us kind of paint a picture of what God's kingdom looks like. Today, as we go through the 12th chapter of Matthew, or at least part of the 12th chapter of Matthew, we will add a few more brushstrokes to that painting so that hopefully the picture can become a little bit clearer for all of us. Where we're going to start specifically today is in verse 22. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Matthew 12, and we're going to start verses 22 through 28. Obviously, it'll be on the screen behind me as well if you want to follow along there. Here's what it says. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Chapter 12, like many of the chapters in the gospel, uh, Gospels, I should say, is full of miracles. Right? Chapter 12, it starts off with Jesus healing a man with a withered hand, and he has the audacity to heal him on the Sabbath. He does this right in front of the Pharisees, in front of the religious leaders. And after he performs this miracle and he heals the man from what was afflicting him, he, he knows that the Pharisees are now conspiring against him, trying to figure out how they can trap him Right? how they can get the justice that they are looking for. And knowing this, what it says is that he left that place. And when he left that place, verse 15 says that many of the people that were there, 
they went and they followed Jesus wherever he was going. And their reward for following Jesus, it says that all were healed, right? Not some, not, not a few of them, not even most of them. It says that all were healed. Jesus was giving away miracles uh, like it was Oprah giving away gifts to her studio audience. It was, you get a miracle, and you get a miracle, and you get a miracle. I expected a bigger laugh from that, but that's okay. <laughs> and then, after he heals everyone who followed, a demon-possessed man is brought before him. And Matthew thinks it's important enough to note that this was not a regular healing, right? Just like everything we had just seen Jesus do. Uh, he, he wants to make sure he points this out, that this healing was actually Jesus freeing a man who was oppressed or, or um, uh, possessed by a demon. And this healing, it shook the crowd so much. It, 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 it made such an impactful moment to them that it left them saying, can this be the son of David? One commentary I read this week, um, it kind of implied that, that that line, the can this be the son of David, it doesn't translate well from the, the Greek to our English that we lose some of the emotion. And they implied that it was much more sarcastic or uh, full of more skepticism. It wasn't the joyful, hopeful, can this be the son of David? It was more this guy. He isn't the son of David, is he? Because others had come before. You have to remember, Jesus wasn't the first to stand before them and say, I am the Messiah. But this guy was different. This Jesus fellow, he taught with authority that the others didn't. He healed. He cast out demons. This man was different, and because he was different, when the Pharisees heard the people's question, they began to panic. Jesus had already made them look foolish, healing on the Sabbath. He came to them with no political pomp, with no circumstance, with no secondary agenda. Without opening his mouth and making a claim as to who he was, the people were already grumbling. And the Pharisees, they had witnessed this. They could not deny or unsee what had happened right in front of their eyes. So they went and they, they played back to one of their, their greatest hits. They charged Jesus and the power that he uh, performed miracles by as coming from Satan. It was actually a pretty common charge. Wouldn't be the last time Jesus heard this. And all throughout the first uh, centuries of the church, uh, the, the, the Jewish folks, they, they would not deny Jesus' power. They would not deny what he had done, but they would say that he was indeed a sorcerer whose powers came from Satan. And they said these things in order to slander or to diminish the work that they had seen happening in front of them. Jesus, of course, replies with the thing, with the thing that Abraham Lincoln would say 1,800 years later in verse 25. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And I think here is where we can find our first truth about the kingdom of God from today's scripture. And that is that the kingdom of God is to be united. Jesus explains how naive their accusation is. He uses simple, common sense. He speaks in a way that would have been easily understood by anyone there that was listening. Right? This idea of a nation, of a kingdom pitted against itself in civil war is not new. We didn't invent civil war in the late 19th century here in America. For as long as there had been kingdoms, there had been conflict. And he even says that communities and households will even be divided that they will not stand the test of time if they are divided, I should say. 
When I think of a kingdom that's divided against itself in civil war, I, I see a kingdom that is laid to waste, that is left in ruins, and that becomes a kind of a barren, desolate wasteland. And this is kind of what runs the risk of happening, again, if a community or a family or even a church, if they are set against themselves. Now, I'm not saying that God's kingdom will fall if we are not united. God's kingdom is eternal and his will will be done whether we are or not. But for how often that Jesus teaches us this example of, of God, he speaks of his father's kingdom. It's very safe to assume when he says that all kingdoms should be united, that our kingdom, his kingdom, stands right in line with that same principle. He uses logic to say, since Satan's plans are grown and advanced by demonic oppression, it would be counterproductive for Satan to send Jesus to cast out his own workers. Uh, he then says something that's, that's extraordinary. You know, if, if Pharisees wore pearls when he said this, they would have clutched their pearls and gasped and fell back into their seat. It's the second truth we have today where he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? Truth number two is that the kingdom of God has come. You, you note Jesus doesn't say it is coming or will or may come. He stands there right in front of them, probably closer than I am standing to you, and he says the kingdom of God is standing right here. Just open your eyes. Right, look at everything that I've done. Look at the miracles. Look at the demons that have been cast out. Look at my teaching. And you will see that the kingdom of God is present. And we shouldn't get this twisted. Uh, there's some people that will study uh, what's called eschatology or, or end times, uh, uh, the study of end times. And they make this kind of twisted argument that since the kingdom of God was there then, that there's no need for it to come again. Right, that since the kingdom of God was already here with us, it's now just our responsibility to be good little boys and girls and follow the rules. Something that was here cannot or need not come again. And this would obviously be an improper way for us to view this, because it would require us to disregard so much of the other teachings that we know that, that tell us in Scripture that Jesus will return again, that Satan will be crushed, and that the dead will be raised. The kingdom has come, and it is also still coming. Right, standing there again, right in front of them, was a third of the Trinity, giving testimony as to what was happening. The kingdom was there, and when Jesus ascended into heaven, the kingdom was still present. Uh, there's another good analogy. It's not my analogy, it's an old analogy. Um, but it does require us to go back into our history books again, if you guys are okay with another little history lesson here. We don't go all the way back to the Civil War. We're going to go back to June 6th, 1944, D-Day. Right, this kind of infamous day where 7,000 ships, 195,000 military personnel from eight different nations stormed the beaches of Normandy. It was General Eisenhower's hope at that time that the, the winning of this battle and then the recapturing of France would bring an end to this bloody war. And he was right, by the end of the month, after the victory had been won, with many casualties to go along with the victory, over a million troops, 150,000 vehicles, and 570,000 tons of supplies had been able to roll across those beaches. And at this point, the writing was on the wall. There was no path to victory for the enemy. But they didn't lay down their guns right then. They didn't say, okay, well, since there's no way that we're going to win now, we're just going to go home. 
No, it, it wasn't until May 8, 1945, nearly a year later, that the enemy finally unconditionally surrendered. And in the in-between time, they lashed out, knowing that they were going to lose. They wanted to take as many of their enemies with them. I hope the analogy is clear. The analogy is that 2,000 years ago, the battle was already fought, and Jesus was victorious. And now that Jesus has defeated death and conquered the grave, the enemy knows that the writing is on the wall and that his fate is indeed sealed. But that doesn't mean that he's going away quietly. He wants to take as many with him into that fiery pit as he possibly can. The kingdom of God has come, it is coming, and it's here with us today. It's here with us today, I know, because of what it says in John 16, 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This Helper, this Holy Spirit that's with us today, again, a third of the Trinity that still dwells within us. It's our source of power, and it's our source of hope. It's the same Spirit that descended upon Jesus at his baptism, and again, the same Spirit that dwells within us when we have put our faith in him and we have followed his example to be baptized as well. The kingdom is here again, not because all has been made right. The devil still prowls. But the kingdom is here because we're not alone. And we are citizens of a kingdom that's actively conquering the world with the power of the gospel. When we continue in verse 29, Jesus makes this very clear for us. He says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Can you hear the authority that Jesus speaks with when he asserts this? He says blankly, Satan has no power to stop him. Right? He says that I did not have the devil's permission to cast that demon out of that man. No, no, the devil was tied up in a chair sitting in the corner watching as I took what he wanted to use for evil and I used it to bring God glory. That same power is still with us today. That same power dwells within us. It's the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. The third point that Jesus makes before he ends uh, what he's saying here is in verse 30. And it's that there is no gray in God's kingdom. It's the simplest to understand, but possibly the most difficult for us to execute. Because it leaves no room for neutral ground. Right? Jesus is saying here, you either accept my teachings and my work, or you stand in danger of God's judgment. It's especially hard for us living in the world that we do today because our world honestly specializes in gray, right? It kind of demonizes this thought of black and white or right and wrong, but we can't really agree on anything. We can't even agree what's fact and what's fake news, but Jesus says, let's go. You're with me or you're not. No one foot here, one foot there. No, have your cake and eat it too. He says, come, harvest with me. The last two verses we look at today, 31 and 32, are, are often misunderstood. Uh, when they're not misunderstood, they're a source of question and a, a kind of spur in the side of people as we try to figure out what exactly is being said here. Verse 31 says this, it says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. 
So what Jesus says here is that blasphemy against the Son can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not. This is a big deal. It should be a big deal to you. Right? Because I've been taught since I was a little boy that right, God is a God of love, and if we confess and repent our sins, we are forgiven. But here Jesus says that there's a sin that won't be. And if you're here today, it probably should be said, if you're questioning what that sin is, if you're here today and you're asking yourself that question, right? if the thought of doing something so repugnant and damning to your soul right, scares you enough to want to know what it is so that you can avoid it, well, I'm here to tell you that chances are that means you have not been lumped into that category of blaspheming the Spirit. Um, blaspheme is simply to speak against or to slander or to defy or to mock. Blaspheming the Son, as distasteful as it sounds, is something that if I am honest with myself and if you are honest with yourself, chances are all of us have done at some point in our lives. Maybe through our words or our actions, or our thoughts, maybe in the way that we doubted his goodness, his wisdom, his faithfulness. Okay, when I think there's some really good examples, though, that if, if you have fallen into this category, you're with some good company, right? Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, and he was forgiven. Paul led a crusade against Christ and his church, and Paul was forgiven. But blaspheming the Spirit is something different. Right, blaspheming the Spirit is a willful disbelief. It's a persistent rebellion. It's, it's a denial of God's work around you. Right, it's a denial not due to lack of evidence, but a lack of humility. You, you've maybe seen or heard or even tasted what it's like to live with the Spirit, and you've willfully rejected it and said, nah, this isn't for me. And you're not forgiven of this sin simply because there is no repentance. Think of it this way, the Pharisees, again, standing face-to-face with Jesus, standing face-to-face with the Son of God, drowning, not even knowing that they were drowning, as the water's rushing up higher and higher on them, it's getting ready to go over their mouth and over their nose, and right in front of them lands a life jacket. They look at the life jacket, they give it a quick look, and they say, this isn't here to save me, that's an anchor, it's here to sink me. And stubbornly, they keep their hands behind their back, unwilling to reach out and accept the free gift that's presented right in front of them. They watch the life jacket float downstream. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Thinking something that was there for your salvation is actually there to sink you. Again, our three points from today as to what God's kingdom looks like, it's that God's kingdom is to be united. God's kingdom is here now. And God's kingdom has no gray in it. When we go back to the Civil War in 1861 now. Uh, Now President Abraham Lincoln is leading a nation that's engulfed in civil war, a civil war that would claim the lives of over 600,000 people. The country was now a house divided, and it was no longer functional. It was no longer standing. Right, This war pit friend against friend, neighbor against neighbor, family against family. Thank God the secession failed. The union was preserved, and and the long process of healing from the sin of slavery would begin. I thought it was really interesting, though, that that during the period of this war, it kind of shows you how far our country has come, not maybe in a good way, but on three different occasions, Abraham Lincoln pled with the people to have a national day of fasting. 
He, he urged the people to go to their places of worship, wherever that might be, and, and to humbly confess their sins to the Almighty God and to ask for God's blessing. Because Abraham was, was interested in uniting the people behind a common flag, but it was the common flag of their faith. Next Sunday uh, is going to be my last Sunday here at South Lake Christian Church. I'm sure most of you already know that. When we came here in 2018, um, we were just looking for a place to worship, and we ended up finding a lot more than that, and we are very grateful. Um, I'm hoping we will come back and visit this newfound home church that we have, uh, especially since Disney World is still just a couple minutes down the road from y'all, so don't change that, and you will see us again. But here's the truth. As long after I'm gone, the ministry at Southlake Christian Church needs to continue. And I do believe that if we keep these three points in front of us from this, this passage in Matthew 12, it's going to help you make sure that that ministry continues effectively. Remember first that God's kingdom has no gray. That means you need to be willing to stand up for the truth. And you need to be willing to label sin as sin, but you need to be able to do so in love. You need to passionately pursue the redemption of the sinner not just the condemnation of their sin. You need to remember that God's kingdom is here and it is now. You need to be aware that you are in the middle of it. That what you're witnessing happening in the world all around you, it isn't evidence of Satan's victory. It's actually evidence of his death throes. It's evidence of his desperation. You need to be strong and courageous. The kingdom you serve has come, it is here now, and it's indeed coming again. You need to remember to stay united. You do this by not needing consensus on every secondary issue that might come across your plate. You keep the main thing, the main thing in all that you do. You don't let your personal preference or your desired man-made traditions keep you from getting out there and harvesting. You keep your eyes focused forward. You're constantly looking for new ways to reach the lost with the good news. You are smack in the middle of a community that is growing at an exponential rate. I can't look to my left or my right without seeing a sold sign or without seeing a new development coming up. There is a harvest here in South Lake County. And it's okay that sometimes as you go out to, to harvest that you will be made to feel uncomfortable. It's perfectly fine because it's not your job to be comfortable. It's your job to get uncomfortable so that we can seek the lost, those who desperately need the good news. Please remember, in everything that you do going forward, always be the church. Pray with me. God, we pray uh, for the communities here surrounding South Lake Christian Church today. We pray for Mascot and Groveland and Claremont, Mineola, Leesburg, Tavares, and, and Howie in the Hills, and all these other places that I'm forgetting, God, where are, are within our arm's reach. We know that there has been people that are lost and people that are drowning in these communities. And, and as our communities grow, those numbers will grow as well. Father, I pray that this church is going to be a church uh, that is seen as a life vest, as, as a light lifted high up on a pole. God, that in this foggy, dangerous world that people are living in, God, that this church would be a beacon of hope and a beacon of light. That would be a church that is casting life jackets out 
that we're not just throwing life jackets in front of people and hoping them to figure out, how do I use this? How do I know that this will save me, God? But that will come alongside those people. We'll put the life jackets on for them. We'll buckle them in tight. We will teach them and guide them and disciple them. Father, I just pray for the future of this church, uh, God, that, that again, uh, that this church would be something that brings hope to a community that needs it desperately. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.